Bonjour. Bonjour, Joe. <laughs> How's it going, man? I'm doing good. Uh, the last days I've been traveling a lot, but by, by, by train, not, not like you, like by plane with jet lag and stuff, but by train. So where have you been traveling to? But actually, I was doing like uh, the round trip between Paris and Berlin because I, I have like I live in in Berlin, but I go really often in Paris. Mm. Uh, I came for Christmas, and then I, I was doing like classes, but in another city which is called Rennes. It's like in Brittany, like so far west in France. So yeah, a lot of train to get there and stuff. It's super cool. Yeah, it's interesting in Europe. I feel like a lot of people take trains. I've taken trains there too. Um, it's super convenient. I, I wish America had the train system that Europe does, but yeah. we uh, it's we don't. <laughs> yeah, last time I was on YouTube and I, I watched a video about like a company in America trying like to renew the train and reborn it. Like uh, they, they they did it like in Florida, I guess, and now they try to do it like in California. Mm. Uh, and like to have high speed train uh, and stuff like this but yeah that's like I, I guess one of the biggest difference like between you guys and and people that lives in Europe yeah well I think it's the, the land mass of the US is pretty big too so and I think it was just made for uh, um, freeways and driving plus it's an American thing we like to drive our cars everywhere it's just like a like a uh, sense of independence or something like that. I, I've heard that from a, a lot of Americans actually. Like, oh, I just love to drive my car because it's like, so, so it's different, right? But, uh, but I think yeah. Europe's like super efficient in that way. You can get, uh, trains pretty, pretty awesome. And then, you know, you could take a uh, Ryanair if you wanted to, uh, really feel bad about yourself. Um, kidding. So yeah, yeah but anyway, um, oh yeah, you can just jet everywhere. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, to, to back up, I'm sure the audience is like, what, what are you guys talking about? Um, welcome to my podcast. It's always like this. Um, yeah, I guess for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, let's go. Uh, so I'm <laughs> Christophe uh, Blefari. I'm a French uh, data engineer. I've been working like in the data industry for the last 10 years. And for like seven years, I was working like uh, in companies. And the last three years, I I've been doing freelance and on my uh, freelance free time, I would say, I do content creation. Uh, I have a weekly newsletter in which I do like uh, content curation, like every week, trying to share the best articles I have found, like and read uh, in the last few days. Um, and it grew a lot. Like I started it like two years ago, and maybe two two year and a half ago, and I have like almost four uh, four thousand uh, subscribers. Nice, and I, I get a lot of feedback from it. Like uh, people uh, using it, uh, find it all like useful. Uh, they use it to like curation and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And on my data engineering time, uh, what I did the most is like building stuff for analytics. To be honest, I, I did not do like a lot of stuff related to data science. Like I'm, I would say better, <laughs> better, and like did a lot of stuff in analytics building warehouses, lakes, and stuff mm -hmm. like to do reportings, actually. That's cool. Yeah, I subscribe to your newsletter. I think that, that I don't know if that's where you met. I think like, like a lot of people you met are probably on LinkedIn, but I uh, subscribe to your newsletter pretty early. Um, and I always like the content of it. Like, uh, let's, let's talk about that first. I think like uh, I'm, always, I'm always fascinated by other content creators. Like why, why do a newsletter? 
Um, it's 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 a lot of work. Uh, you sometimes feel like you're uh, sending a newsletter out to uh, the void. Yeah. Uh, why why do you do it? Yeah, that that that's a great question because sometimes I'm a bit jealous, like about this podcast you have, like where you just turn on the mic and you just speak and you send it and like it's one hour of time and you're good. <laughs> because when I do the newsletter, I, like it takes me five hours, six hours, depends, mm -hmm. and stuff like this. So uh, the reason I started the newsletter was uh, I was reading a lot of articles and I had one issue, which one uh, I was reading articles through the whole week. And so I wanted like to channel and to funnel like the, the the my time and read it only at one point, like on Friday, on Friday morning, and do not read like article uh, like on Monday, Tuesday, because uh, yeah, you lose focus when you do this. Yep. That was the, the the first stuff, and the second stuff was like so now I have a lot of articles that I read. Uh, I should save them somewhere, and so at first I started like to uh, yeah, you know, uh, having bookmarks and stuff, and I was like. Why not starting a blog? Maybe like other people will like it, and that's how we started. Actually, like just putting uh, bullet points and links, and out of nowhere, five people I didn't knew like uh, just subscribe without no advertisement and stuff. And that's I was cool. like, okay, <laughs> why? Uh, and that's how I started actually. Why do you keep going though? It's a lot of work. <laughs> Okay, like I, I, oh, no. I do a newsletter too, and I'm like, man, this is a you guess yeah. I get around to this once again for the week, and it's fun, but uh, could be doing I, other stuff. Yeah, you're right. So <laughs> I, I continue because, yeah, I like like the the process, like to select articles, try to uh, having like an opinion on stuff, uh, trying to train my <laughs> written English and stuff like this uh, because, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm French, so. It helps me like practice and speak better English, stuff like this. And now that like, you know, like the, the machine is on, I'm like, yeah, but people uh, rely on me like to, to get articles, to get news yeah. and stuff like this. So I want to continue, but th th there is something I, I need to find, which is uh, finding the right balance between sending every week, like 20, 30 articles and stuff like this. And sometimes uh, having like smaller articles that uh, like give me give me time to to breathe to breathe you know yeah like, uh, chill articles stuff like this uh, speaking about my life that's what i said i did like two weeks ago like when i did like the retrospective on 2023 uh, it was like a longer article but it was easier to write because it was just ideas out of my mind rather than like reading stuff uh, sorting the article out and stuff like this Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you, and you, why, why, why do you continue? Why, why do 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 you do it? I just read a ton of articles every week, and I feel like at least a handful of them should be. Um, you know, I, I guess I don't really care if people read them, but they're things that I'm interested in, and I suppose it's. But at the end of the day, I'm making a newsletter for the people who maybe I don't know, sort of like this content. Maybe they don't, maybe, maybe they do. I don't know, but, but it's more, I think personal thing where I just feel like there's a lot of good stuff out there that people are writing and it, and it, and I feel more than ever too. We'll, we'll talk about generative AI in a bit, but in a world where it's super easy to make content, I feel like curation of really good content is going to be more important uh, than even it used to be. Right. I mean, I think 
newsletters have always had articles in them and good links, but I think more than ever, it's going to be more important to sort of bubble those to the top uh, amidst the sea of just um, uh, pretty bland stuff, really. I mean, you can already see it happening. I mean, you go to LinkedIn and it feels like half the posts are written by ChatGPT. Um, so just not great, but yeah, it is what it yeah, is. And when you create content, do you create like the content for yourself or for other people like because i think it's like pretty pivotal like this 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 answer yeah i i always do it for myself first because I, I, if i'm not interested in the material i'm gonna have a hard time writing it which is why like for example i don't ghost write for people right i mean I, I, people have asked countless times hey would you like to ghost write i'm like absolutely not would you like to write a top article on this topic i'm like definitely not because i only write stuff that i first find interesting but then i think my audience will find interesting but in order for you to create something i think that you uh are going to be proud of like you have to inherently have interest in it right and so that's, yeah, that's right. the big difference yeah otherwise it feels like work i mean writing itself is hard enough as it is that feels like a job even if you're doing it because you want to do it i mean that's that's what i've been doing I literally before this i was editing you know part of my book and i was like this this is where the work is but but that's enjoyable right otherwise yeah so it's, it's a difference yeah yeah it's, it's an interesting one so And by the way, for the audience, uh, uh, Christoph and I both have podcasts, so we'll be asking each other a lot of <laughs> questions. It's, uh, um, we're both, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a good mix. So, yeah. yeah. But, but writing, it's an interesting one. I, I, I don't know. I always ask writers why they do stuff. And, it's, and I think it's different. If you were a journalist, say, at like a, you know, a, a publication or maybe a newspaper, if those even exist still, or whatever, then you have to write no matter what it is, right? And so you always have to balance it with that work ethic too, where it's like writing time is writing time and it doesn't matter what else you should be doing. It's like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but I think just writing stuff that you're more excited about definitely makes the outcome better. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree actually. And you know, like in, in, in terms of like writing contents, my, I would say my only inspiration Uh, up, the, at, up to that time has always been like uh, you know the pragmatic engineer like uh, Gigoli. Oh, Gigoli. yeah, he's he's awesome. Yeah, like what what he's doing is like this is so crazy. Like what what he built and the 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 pace he really is like so so good content. Oh yeah, and, and stuff like this. He, I think he's him and um, Ben Thompson from Startechery are like the two gold standards for people who are out there, um, you know, just writing really quali high quality articles almost every day. Right. And Gregory and, uh, and Ben are, I mean, that's, that's their job. And, and the thing is they, they make good money from it because you can tell that yeah. they, the content is, 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 it's really good. I and mean, it's something people want to pay for. And like, to me, that's a litmus test. Are people willing to pay money for it? Like, I think that's, that's a hurdle. Once you cross that, then, you know, you've probably done something that, you know, at least other people will, value with their money and time most people will value it with their time perhaps if they read it that's time investment on most people but to invest the money is i think a that's a different standard you have to cross so yeah for sure and, and, and all, as well like this, this is a question i uh, already already had like to myself like do i want to push forward like my writing content or all my stuff around my brand i would say between quotes and i'm like Yeah, no way. Actually, <laughs> I I I I want to continue like doing operational stuff. I want to have like the content as a side activity uh, for the moment because if I do content all the time, 
oh yeah, my work ethics will not be that good. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we were walking around Paris last um, uh, last month talking about this, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's for the audience. Uh, um, and Christoph and I hang out uh, in Europe, <laughs> in Berlin, and now Paris. But uh, we were walking around uh, one evening talking about this, and it's, it's that fine line where you have to. Um, you know, balance if say if you're a practitioner who's now doing content, how much do you balance the practitioner part versus the content part? It's 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 a balancing act for sure. If you become a full on content uh, creator, now you're not a practitioner, and I, and I the fear with that is you start losing touch with the very thing you're writing about. Um, so that's that's yeah, it's hard. I don't know. How, how have you figured that out though? Right now, I'm still like my newsletter time is like on Friday. Like every Friday, I do the writing stuff. I do the content stuff. Actually, I do like everything that is related to content and to building my brand. And the other days is like doing the rest, building network, uh, working with my clients, uh, and stuff like this. And the 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 stuff that still keeps me. Um, away from like going all in on the content is that I still have not accepted any uh, partnership or like advertisement or stuff like this. Yeah. Like, I, I still refuse like uh, people that wants to put like advertisement in the newsletter. And that's, I guess, the stuff that keeps me uh, from the other side, actually, <laughs> uh, because yeah. I don't get money from it i'm still doing it like because i like it and not because i need it and so yeah i think that's how it is right now yeah i agree with that it's it's, an, it's a actually i had to post this on linkedin the other day too because we get a lot of companies asking to be guests in our podcast yeah i've seen it yeah yeah i saw a post <laughs> um and it was just one of these things where i felt like it was very self-serving for the people asking because it's a lot of marketing and pr uh, departments of these companies or outsource PR uh, people looking for podcasters, but it's like, you know, we don't charge for the shows. We don't charge, we don't have any sponsors. And so really it is um, it's free. Right. But I think the trade-off is you're not allowed to promote your stuff on there. And I felt like the moment we start letting people promote their, their stuff on our show, like it sort of destroys what made it the white people show up to it. And I just, I can't have that. Right. And so um, and advertising is a different one. I was, it's an interesting one. Like then, uh, I started a new subsect practical data modeling a bit ago. And I've had a lot of companies inquire about sponsorship and I might take it actually, because I think it, for that audience, it's, it might work really well. Um, but then you have to balance. Okay. So do you like, do you charge people for the newsletter or do you just like leave it free and have it advertiser supported? But then what's the balance of that? You know? So it's, it's, yeah. there's, it's, it's, um, it's tricky because you want to balance. And the, the thing, the thing you want to probably keep in mind first is like, it's a, it's really about the community that you're growing, right? For your newsletter, Christoph, it's like, you're, you know, it's about your readers first. I mean, that's, they keep coming back because you have good content. If you start throwing in this other variable of promotion, what does that do to it? You have to yeah, be really yeah. careful. So. Uh, and that that's a tricky balance still because uh, I, I meet a lot of, a lot, when I say a lot, I meet a few of like my readers like in real life, like whether like I meet up in Paris or Berlin, and each time I, I speak about like the ads and stuff like this, they are, they are saying like, yeah, we don't care. Like put ads, gain money from it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but no. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, that's super hard, especially when you do like written content. 
that how do you know your audience actually how do you know like what your audience like because like newsletter is like just sending an email having people like subscribe like through a RSS, rss feed and you don't know like the audience like you just mm -hmm. send stuff stuff out and you all people read it yeah i think especially in the age of a again generative ai it's just going to be more important to really i think have the best content yeah. you can make i mean you'll make the money elsewhere i mean you, you know you, you yeah, freelance sure. and stuff and it's like you got to look at it through the holistic lens like i think you're one of the rare people i know or one of the few people who um take the long game who aren't looking at it like hey how much money can i make off my newsletter today like that's because that has you know long-term consequences it means now christoph is sort of i don't know he'll take money for anything right and, and it, it's that's not the, i don't know that's a look you, i mean i know you good enough to know that i don't think that's the look you're going for so yep. like that's that's how it is Walk me through this though. I mean, you're a practitioner in data engineering. You've, you've been um, doing freelance for a few years. And we were talking about this before the show started, uh, you know, but you had something on your mind in terms of data engineering has been changing um, yeah. lately. And uh, yeah, wait, 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 what, what's been changing? What, what's in your mind? So um, I think th th there are like two parts, like the data engineering might, might be changing. I, I think right now it's changing because a lot of companies like invested in analytics engineering in dbt or stuff like related to dbt like trying like going more and adding more like data modeling to the stack and so like i would say like the investment like in time and money has shifted away and maybe as well because like companies becoming more mature so you don't need that low level data engineering in a lot of companies and or Maybe you still need it, but uh, they are blind and they prefer like to do data modeling instead. Um, that's one thing. And I guess the second thing that I've seen in the last two years is like the role of the data engineer that have shifted actually. Um, and the, the one of the things that can illustrate it the, the most is that, so two years ago, like the analytics engineering or analytics engineer role was not as, uh, precise as today or as like uh, in a lot of companies as today and i guess like the analytics engineer took a lot of the job from the data engineer and mm. so a few of the data engineers i guess have been like so so if if, if you put like the the roles of data people like in the on the line i would say like the data engineers on the left because they move the data uh, from A to B and then on B like the analytics engineers are like doing stuff and then from B, B to C and C is like the BI tool where you have like the data analyst or like the business analyst and people that are using the data so from left to right and so before when the, that, the, the analytics engineer was not here it was only three year olds and since the, data the analytics engineers entered the game actually like it pushed like the data engineer through the left close to the DevOps, close to the SRE, close to the infrastructure and stuff like this. And yeah, so I would say that right now, when you speak about data engineers, it's more about data platform engineers. And I guess mm. like, I, I don't know if it's the future, but I, I, I think it's like going this way right now. Mm. Seems like it, I think it, it, it's, it's not what it used to be. What I mean by that is data engineering, I think was, there's a lot more low level plumbing 
back in the day. Yeah. I mean, historically, it was more, uh, I guess, a quote, big data engineer. I think it's historically how you might want to look at data yeah, engineering, but, but since then it changed. So, But when when you say, for instance, like uh, if you take like the example of big techs and when you say like big data programming yeah. and stuff like this, actually like the stuff the data engineer were doing was creating data pipelines for analytics purpose, like creating transformation with the data pipeline, which is now handed over like to the analytics engineer, you know? Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. Even if if it like the the data engineering stuff that they were doing was low level, it was for like an analytics purpose or for a business purpose. Right now, because of the analytics engineer, all this like business related stuff has been like stripped out from like the um, data engineer scope, I would say. And but is it a uh, matter of like kind of like is it a semantic? question though because i always viewed analytics engineering as a like a, a part of data engineering where data engineering might also be a bit more than analytics um because you, you yeah, might right. also be you know serving uh data for um uh, you know event event driven architectures or whatnot which historically isn't part of the uh analytics right um yeah. i don't know what do you what do you think like i, I guess let's talk about analytics engineering what, what is analytics engineering Good question. Um, if I if I take like my like the, the the market I know, which is like the French one mainly, uh, at the moment uh, you can say that the analytics engineering is like people doing DBT uh, for like eighty percent of the the people that are analytics engineer. It's like writing SQL mm -hmm. in DBT and maintaining and being the owner of the DBT project. I don't think it's a good idea like to define the role uh, to like related to a technology, but I think it sums up like very well what is right now like the analytics engineering world. Uh, but if we go further than this, I guess like the analytics engineer role is like being the owner of the core data model of the data team. I would say like ev everything that is core to the business or the core table or the super table like uh, linkedin people uh, yeah uh, call it but like what uh, lies i would say in the silver uh in the silver layer i would say something yeah like this. yeah and for the, for the audience he's referring to is a silver layer and a medallion architecture so you have bronze silver and gold for various yeah. stages of raw to curated and useful data. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I kind of look at analytics engineering as, um, on one hand, I think it's kind of a nonsense title. Like it does, I, I'm curious why it was even invented because it, it describes what a BI engineer used to do or a BI developer, right? Yeah. And so that, that was a job that's been around since, uh, you know, at least the 1990s. Yeah, but data engineers also, I think, you know, uh, in, in some ways, uh, a convenient title that fits today, but is always, uh, I mean, the, the, the big data part used to be software engineering because you didn't have the, the notion of a data engineer back in the day. And then you have analytics engineering or the analytics part that used to be the BI and ETL developers or a DBA or a data architect even back in the you know 80s, 90s and 2000s. But then um, it kind of reminds me of what happened with data science where you've, that, that title meant something back in the day and now it means something completely different now. And so I feel like it just titles titles sort of evolve as 
I think as a function of a company's ability to write a job description to hire somebody with a title that will be attractive to them. Yep. So I mean, you couldn't, I mean, you wouldn't do a job rec- requisite, you wouldn't do a job description today and say we're going to hire for a um, a BI uh, an ETL developer because that's not as cool as a data engineer or yep. analytics engineer, even though it's essentially the same thing. So, yeah. Yeah, you're so right. I wonder how yeah. much. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, but. But you know, where do you where do you see the field of data engineering going and, and analytics engineering? We'll we'll accept those two terms as being uh, what we described them as. But like, hey, where do you see it all going? So, yeah, I, I think it's hard to answer the question because uh, so I've been doing like data engineering stuff uh, since two thousand and fourteen, and I would say that for the last ten years, I've done like almost the same stuff like every year. With different technologies, I would say, like it's still <laughs> moving data from Excel uh, relational databases and stuff to somewhere else to do like to create tables and to to create like transformation to do like visualization. But um, in in the current state, and I, I've seen that for for for, for a lot of uh, years uh, people struggle like to uh, hire data engineers especially in france like because uh, we have a lack of data engineers so i would mm-hmm. say organization adapted um and organization tried to either like find tool to remove the need of data engineers uh, because uh yeah it was super hard like to find that engineer to hire that engineers either because like they were too expensive either because there isn't. <laughs> um, and so right now we are, if you take, for instance, Airbyte, like I would say one of the tagline at the, at the start of Airbyte was like the idea of having like a tool that magically works uh, to move data from A to B without the need of a data engineer. I guess you still need a data engineer because you need someone that uh, can be uh, the owner or can be responsible of the tool. And no one except a data engineer will <laughs> will want to be like the owner of the Airbyte, for instance, or another tool like this. Um, but still, companies don't want to have like data engineers because it's super hard like to to find them. Uh, and so I guess like the, yeah, with the time going forward, uh, maybe because of this, we will see less less data engineers because yeah, the struggle of finding them. Mm, interesting. Why, why do you think there's a shortage? Um, good question. I, I guess I guess uh, one of the issues is that because data science is super not, not super easy. <laughs> I'm like I'm exaggerating. Oh, it's, it's way easy. I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> no, no. But what I was saying is like it's way easier to teach data science at school or at uni um, because when when you teach data science it's like on project it's more practical it's like you, you can like in a few months going into a project from a to b and do stuff when it comes to data engineering <laughs> it's way harder this is something we already chatted about i, I guess when when we were working mm-hmm. uh, but like creating like the the the, the right material to in a lecture or in a class, uh, teaching people to become data engineers is super hard because to be a good data engineer, it requires two stuff. It requires you like to write code and to be good at like 
all the data engineering pipelining, infrastructure, and stuff like this. But it requires you as well, like to put stuff in production and to be an, uh, able like to fix when something fails. And this is something that you cannot reproduce in a, in a, in classes actually, like having pipelines that run in the cloud and that you will try to fix in one month, two months, stuff like this, like having stuff that uh, continues on a, on a few, few days, months, uh, having people that waking that, yeah, that wakes up like in the morning to fix stuff. This is something that you have in companies, but you, you cannot replicate like in classes and at uni, I would say. It's hard to replicate for sure. Um, I mean, something I've been thinking about as you, as I mean, I think data engineering, the concepts of data engineering need to be taught. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that the, the role of data engineering is hard to describe. It's sort of like teaching heart surgery. Like yeah. I've never been taught heart surgery actually, but I can imagine it's, um, difficult. Uh, it's not something that you take a class on and you just go do, um, requires a bit more. And I, I think that in, in some ways data engineering is one of these, uh, jobs you get into after you've done something different. Um, you know, so maybe you've been a data scientist or an analyst and you want to more, work more upstream, you know, and become a data engineer, or maybe you're a software engineer and you want to work more on data. It seems like it's kind of a natural uh, sort of middle ground there. It's interesting one where I think I'm starting to see a lot of universities having at least data engineering classes. I haven't yet seen a data engineering degree, which is different than a class. Uh, I've, you know, I've uh, guest lectured at, you know, several universities for their data engineering classes. And I think that's at least maybe a stepping stone to getting people interested in the field. And I've seen some people become data engineers as a result of that, but I'm very curious where it goes. I don't, have an answer. Like I'm working on a course right now and it feels like the, um, you know, on data engineering, I think the goal is to at least my goal is not to really teach you to become a data engineer, but more just how to think like one. Yeah. You know, and I think what you're pointing out pipelines break productions messy. So pe having people recognize that, cause I think the problem I have with how a lot of things are taught right now, say data pipelines and spark or a class like that is it, it's, it's a lot of fill in the blank exercises with spark or whatever tool. Yep. And when, when have you ever done that in the real world where it's like, I'm just going to, um, I'm starting from scratch. I'm doing a hello world with Spark. Um, if you're hired as a new data engineer, you're typically going into a company and working on an existing frame platform. Like you're not standing that up. I don't know who in the right mind would trust a brand new junior data engineer to stand up a, a brand new system. That to me sounds crazy. So, yeah, so you have to start somewhere. Like the yeah, and, and the Spark you will learn at school, you will do it like in a notebook, uh, only like either like in uh, interpreted way or stuff like this, like doing with stuff with data frames and and it's not like, oh, it's deployed in companies actually, like it's far away from like the way it's deployed in company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm, I'm also curious to see where data engineering goes. I mean, we wrote about this in the last chapter of the book where I felt like, even the title could eventually disappear at some point. That's what titles do. Um, yeah. I'm not religiously attached to uh, the title. I, mean, I think the, the discipline is a different question. The practice of what a data engineering data engineer does is a different question, but every title changes. Uh, maybe yeah, except you're right. if, you're right. a, uh, if you're an accountant or a, a doctor, but I'm trying to think, yeah, well, maybe not all titles change, but some do. 
So. Personally, like, like since the beginning, I've always said that I'm a software engineer. Like, I'm a software engineer that happens to do like stuff in data. But yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that I, I prefer good. like to yeah. define myself like this when I, when I speak like to to newcomers because what I think I do is like writing code, like in a, a traditional tech way. But the code I write is like doing stuff with data teams and data people and visualizing data, transforming data and stuff like this. So I'm a software engineer actually. Yeah. How important is it, do you think, for a data engineer to be good at software engineering? So I would say it depends, like always, like the answer is it depends, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Uh, many, I would say it depends on companies or in the ecosystem you are in, actually. Um, because uh, if we go back like to the semantics and stuff like this, uh, for a long time, when, when you were looking at uh, data engineers role at Meta, for instance, like the data engineers at Meta were doing only SQL. So when like <laughs> you are a data engineer and you do all in SQL, yeah, we don't care about like all the software stuff and to be good mm -hmm. at software and having, like good architectural patterns and stuff like this and doing clean code even if clean is like a shitty term and it's like too subjective <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but when when you, you when when you go like uh deeper and you are more like writing code like either like in python or if uh, a few of people are still like doing Scala or Java or stuff like this. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to have not like uh, been in the Java world, but uh, I think there are like still people on in in, in this world. Oh, uh, Java's everywhere, dude. I mean, let me just read the Tayobi index for right now. Let me just see. I know. Yeah, but Python's number one still, right? C yeah. and C sharp, C plus plus are two and three, and then Java's four. Java used to be. Um, it's interesting in Tayobi, It used to have a double digit uh, lead. It was um, the biggest one. I remember ten years ago, for example, Python was. I think it was like a maybe as a top ten language, but yes. like at the bottom of the top ten. And I I, re I remember people were saying, you know, you know, if you if you want to like. If you want so if you want a fun toy to play with, do Python or Ruby, right? Because Python is more of a web development language back then. But if you want to make the money, if you want a real job, you're gonna do uh, Java. Right. And so that was the mentality then. But Python, um, you know, I, I mean I watched this progression in real time, no pun intended, because I had a meetup that I started in 2013 on Python and it started we started as a web development group actually. Right. I was I was like the lone data oh, okay. guy in there and I was doing talks of machine okay. learning and it, it it kept taking off to the point where, you know, now it's literally the top language. But, you know, I don't think anyone expected that to happen. But the whole point is. It, it's. What I saw with, with uh, these languages, too, is like a lot of the old uh, um, uh, big data tools were all written in some sort of a Java or JVM language, either Scholar or um, Java, right? But increasingly, a lot of packages are, you know, Python. I think if you want something more heavy duty, you're still going to go to Java. But now it's like Rust and Go or the other two, right? For more systems level stuff, because Python still kind of sucks at that. But it's just it's interesting uh, seeing how the tools have transformed. But I think like the um, the role itself is still roughly the same, right? I mean, you're, yeah, you're right. Software engineering hasn't changed. I don't think it's changed in the tools we use. And maybe some of the practices, but inherently, you're still writing code that needs to 
function in systems. Like that's sort of how that works. So it's interesting. So yeah, yeah. And just to go back, like to the the, the, the question just before, like uh, especially when, for, for instance, if I take the example of Airflow, um, if you are a good software engineer, I guess your pipeline in Airflow will be way better than if you are not. And the reason is like people did not realize it, but when you write stuff in Airflow, um, you write pipeline. It's like easy to write and stuff like this, but it's way too easy, like to. <laughs> To, to, to write shit actually, like to write shitty code and to write like uh, having like spaghetti code, having stuff that repeats, uh, having like uh, not good structure and stuff like this. Oh, yeah. And that's, yeah, like Airflow is just a framework. And when you write pipeline in Airflow, uh, it's better like if you are like a good software programmer because yeah, you, you, you need like some factorization, you need some, yeah, because you repeat like every time, like you do pipeline, you, you move data from A to B and from A to B, uh, from like uh, C to B, uh, D to B and so on. So yeah, you need that good programming structure in your code. Yeah, it helps. That's one thing too, I think that it, it, it should be taught better if we're talking about like teaching data engineers and engineers in general, it's just the uh, art of writing good code. I know that, you know, we'll, we'll get into this in a second, but uh, Copilot's going to probably, you know, um, people are just going to be copy pasting from that or it'll just be generating code for you. And um, I mean, it's so different. It's, it's, in some ways it's better and worse. I think in the old Stack Overflow days and by old, I mean, that's what you did before Copilot, um, <laughs> like a year and a half ago. Uh, but it gives you the opportunity, I think, to have code written for you, but you still got to know what good code looks like. And it's not just it does it look structurally correct but um are you doing things in the most performant way given the tools you have and the problem you're trying to solve right so that's really to me that's what engineering is about is like solving the problems in, in ways that provides a great outcome um uh you know in the most efficient um you know most optimally correct way possible that's not going to have any side yeah. effects um you know so whether you're using copilot or not i guess is I guess maybe it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, as long as you're still producing something. It's, but yeah, but I think yeah, that the, the art, the art of writing code is going to change though. Right. And I think it is an art form to some extent. I think that's what I, I fear is that the, um, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too yeah. old. I don't understand. No, no, I, actually I, 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 I 100% agree actually. Like, so for instance, like the, the copilot name, like the semantic, like the name copilot has been like wonderfully uh, chosen because uh, that's how it should be. Like it's something you, you are still like in the driver's seat, like as a, as a software engineer or as a data engineer or as a, as the people holding the keyboard, I would say. Yep. And so if you don't have like the foundational concept, uh, yeah, the copilot will we will not produce the correct stuff. Will not produce the correct structure. Will not you, you will not be efficient like to find what you what you need. And it's not prompt engineering. Prompt engineering is totally is like it's different. Like this way is more like you have ideas. Uh, you have like a computer, and you need to ask the computer like, and you need to translate the ideas you have like uh, into the computer. If you don't have the initial ideas, like the copilot will not help you actually. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, you, you had an interesting thing we were talking about before we started, though, right? So it was um, you were some students. Yeah. And I think you asked some questions. And then uh, walk, 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 me, walk, so, walk the audience through this. It was fascinating. So uh, it's been uh, so I, I've started like doing a lecture at university since um, 2015. Okay. Uh, and so for seven years, I've been uh, teaching uh, Python for data science uh, at uni. Um, it was like a Python basic courses, Pandas and Scikit-learn. It was like very beginner stuff. But th th this, this lecture, I've stopped it. And since, uh, yeah, and three years ago, I've started like a new class called DataOps. Uh, that I oh, give cool. at a uh, French engineering school. It's like a statistical school. It's like the, the best one in France. And th this year, so it was like uh, on Monday. Um, so this week, actually, <laughs> not this year, this, this week. I've done like uh, 15 hours of the data ops classes. And I've noticed something that, that was super weird, which was the students were not asking uh, a lot of questions. And when I compared it to like previous years, uh, they were uh, like less stuck into stupid stuff. Like when, when you teach at uni, like you have to, <laughs> to get used to it, but people will ask you uh, why there is this issue. Uh, for instance, in Python, and they will not uh, like scroll to the bottom of the traceback. They will not find by themselves like the mm. issues, even if it's like uh, division by zero, even if it's like uh, type error or stuff like this. When they have like an exception, they are not used to scroll to the bottom, find the error, stuff like this. And yeah, this year something was different. Like this week, actually, uh, something was different. And I was like, on Monday, I was like, why is it different? I don't understand. And actually, I understood like uh, on Wednesday <laughs> um, when I was like uh, going into the class, like uh, trying to help someone debug something. I've seen that people were using like ChatGPT, students were using ChatGPT. And so I asked them like, uh, who, is asking, uh, who, who is using ChatGPT? And the whole class said uh, me. So I had like a class with 20 students and every, everyone like raised, yeah, everyone raised their hand like to say, I use ChatGPT. Uh, so now rather than like asking me stuff, <laughs> they asked to ChatGPT. Uh, and when ChatGPT is not performing, I guess, they ask me in the end. Uh, right now, I don't, I don't know yet how to think about it and what to think about it, but there is something like not good about it. I would say <laughs> like my feeling what's, is that, Hmm, feels what's not that, good. What's not good about it? Why don't, why don't you like this? Mm, because uh, what's the purpose of a teacher? If you, yeah, what, what's the purpose of having like an in-person teacher? If you like, if ChatGPT is that good that you still don't need them, so maybe maybe there is an issue with my class. So I, I need to find something and to do stuff differently, uh, like in my exercise, in the stuff I in the stuff I teach. But I need to renew myself, maybe, and I guess that's the maybe the answer. 
But yeah, there, there, there is a reason that uh, people are going still to the university. There is a reason that even, you know, like there is bootcamp, there is stuff like remotely. Uh, there, there is a reason for the school system to still work like to having like in-person teachers because when you are in person, like stuff go way faster than when you are like on your computer or through internet and stuff like this. And so if still in classes where you are in person, people are using ChatGPT to, to, to learn stuff, I guess there is an issue somewhere. Yeah, I'm, I'm struggling with this too. I, I feel like it's the inevitable, well, it's reality today. Everyone's using ChatGPT for practically everything. Uh, people use it at work all the time for various things, whether or not they're supposed to. I think there's like, I, I, I was uh, speaking at a um, chief information officer uh, round table the other day, and I, I jokingly called it a shadow AI now, because there's a notion of shadow IT that these uh, leaders would have to tackle with. And now you got shadow AI that's people are using it, even if you have a, a policy in place, but you can't use it. You're like, yeah, that's cool. This makes my job easier when you use it. But then with students, right? I, I teach uh, at uni as well, and it's a, uh, and I teach other places too. And it's, I'm trying to think of, okay, so if you live in a world where everyone's going to use ChatGPT, what, and you think you're, you're very correct, Christoph, and, and that what's the point of a teacher under the old way of doing stuff, right? Because if you're just delivering a lecture and some homework and they can use ChatGPT for it, I mean, what do you, what's, what's the value of that whole experience at the end of the day? Like, why do we do it? Why would people pay a lot of money to go to a university when they could uh, do a boot camp online and use ChatGPT in pretty much the same way? Um, I think it's a valid question. Um, and I guess the way we teach might have to do things, you know, be done in a way that AI can't really do. I, I don't know. It, it's yeah. I think it's a question every educator is talking to. I mean, I, I speak to the deans and other people at universities, people who run universities, and it's a question they're still grappling with. I, I don't know that we have an answer. Um, would, would you tell your students not to use ChatGPT? Is that maybe one path you would take? No. Be, be, because, so, the, the way I see ChatGPT and the way I see, like, students using it is, like, the same as, like, uh, asking... So, th there, there is two parts, like... So, I ask them as a following question, like, uh, is ChatGPT your go-to when you have an issue? Or is it still Google, as I say, like, no, it's ChatGPT. And when ChatGPT is wrong, they go to Google. <laughs> so that's crazy to me because, like, I was born in the Google era and I started, yeah. like, programming, like, in the <clears throat> Google era. And so, I yeah, like, that's, like, the joke, you know, like, copy-pasting from Stack Overflow. But actually, it's not copy-pasting from Stack Overflow. It's copy-pasting from, like, uh, Google Search. And then you take the first yeah. on Google Search and you put it in your code. Is it far away from ChatGPT? I would say yes and no. Like, in a sense, it's the same as ChatGPT because you ask your computer something and you have an answer. But there, there is something different when you do it on Google. It's like you have a lot of uh, answers and you pick the one that you feel the most relevant. When you are in ChatGPT, you are in one thread and one answer. And one answer. And so in this sense, it's like totally different than searching in Google. And mm -hmm. it blocks something which is the, the, the free mind or just like having the creativity to think about your, your problem, to slightly draw like the solution in your head and asking the, the, the computer. With ChatGPT, like the, the the computer is giving you like the 
the most probable answer and you stop thinking about it. And I, I guess that's the, the biggest issue. And so still, I will not like uh, tell people like do not use ChatGPT because it's stupid, I guess. Uh, but I need to find stuff and find exercise that uh, cannot be uh, fully by, answered by ChatGPT and that ask them like to think about it, to find like solution by themselves rather than just asking like the full stuff in ChatGPT. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And, and I've been thinking about this a lot too, where I think maybe it's, Part of part of me wants to encourage students to use ChatGPT, but you give them a uh, it's a real world problem now, right? Uh, it's not just how do you code this or that. I think that that's pretty much a solved problem to a large extent. Like how what how would you write the code to solve this? Um, well, most people say, well, I'll just ask ChatGPT to write the code for me. Uh, but given a scenario, right? So um, uh, I have a server over here. I can't access it. Um, you know, I'm getting this error message, you know, here, here's my setup. Uh, you know, if you ask ChatGPT that it would might give you a few answers, but is that the right one? I mean, maybe using it for more kind of investigatory things to try and help you unblock yourself. Cause I think a lot of the problems that we have in engineering are really getting past a lot of blocks and obstacles yeah. that we have, whether that's because of us or because of a, a team or some configuration issue for the cloud. I don't know, but it's. But, you know, it, it's, I think teaching is going to have to move more towards teaching people to think, to reason about causal type questions. So like why and, and how, um, not necessarily like what, um, you know, where or when type questions, because that, that, those will be uh, to a large extent answered. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting one for sure. I think for people like us, we feel like it's, on one hand, it feels awesome that you're going through this period in real time, just like uh, with Google, you mentioned that. I mean, that was a cool thing when it came out. That was awesome. It was, uh, it's better than everything else out there. Um, but we're sort of reaching up that post search age, you know, and it's, yeah. So how do you teach? I remember teachers would say like, you can't use Google. And we're like, yeah, that's nice. We're, we'll use it anyway. I remember when yeah, it first came right. out, I met my girlfriend, she showed me Google when I was in college. I was like, that's pretty dope. We are using Yahoo or Alta Vista at the time. Google. I was like, that's cool. In the the system, there's something with Google that is totally different in ChatGPT is that when you search on Google, it's uh, deterministic. Like, uh, you you put like a a text, and probably if you put the same text like one year or two years ago, uh, two years after, you will get maybe the same result. You will still get maybe the page you click on like two years ago. Yeah, because like the link will be like a uh, deep purple rather than just blue and you will still uh, like you will activate a memory and you will activate something and like uh, a souvenir that you have um, and stuff like this the issue with ChatGPT is that this is not deterministic like you can ask like the same question maybe it will not produce like the same code and and, and uh, well idempotent or deterministic like maybe that's I would say that both of the concept that also are problematic, I guess, in this topic. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you talk to your students about uh, ChatGPT, why why do they use it? Did you ask them why they use it? 
So yeah, that's when uh, they said, uh, yeah, because like a teacher said, we can use it. <laughs> a teacher said they could use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they use it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that 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 was like the the when I said like, when do you use it? They said like, yeah, a teacher allowed us to use it, so we use it. And what they told me after this was, um, so I, I, at the school I, I teach, um, in the previous year, all the like exercises were like uh, blank uh, exercise, like uh, they give you like a unfinished program and you have to finish it, uh, or they give you like uh, all the skeleton of your code and then they say like, you have to fill uh, this function, this function to make your program work and stuff like this. Um, and the issue with this is that you just put this in ChatGPT, and ChatGPT will like <laughs> ace it. Like it, it will be super good because you you're giving him like a, a really good material to start with. So the teacher changed their strategy, and now they give like very open exercise with like one or two sentences. Mm -hmm. And so like the student, I are like totally lost, <laughs> and so they need more chat GPT uh, because like um, the teacher is giving like a very open exercise just like saying you have to do this without any guidance and so like yeah uh, I'm not sure it's better now uh, because of this yeah yeah well, we'll we'll find out, man. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's what I, what I find interesting as an educator is that this the world has changed. Uh, the world changed this quickly. Yeah, that's great. You know, um, I mean, GPT had been out for a long time, actually, but you throw a form in front of it, and suddenly everyone's using it. And um, remember, even like the beginning of last year, twenty twenty three, people, you know, teachers were freaking out about it, and some were I think becoming flexible and using it, and. Um, I know even my kids' classes, they all use it. Okay. Um, when you, you Bard or ChatGPT, I mean, we have a, um, I, I have the kids use Bard because it's like, I don't want to pay for an extra subscription. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's like use ChatGPT 3.5, I guess. But uh, it's, yeah, it's so reality, though. It's pretty good, though, for code generation and everything else. So I don't know. I think it's just gonna how it's going to be, man. I mean, it, it's more... Um, now, how are people like us going to adapt? And you know, I think the content and the education part, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying that with my new book right now. Like I just, um, I'm launching a lot of it on Substack. Uh, Cause I feel like maybe that's an alternative. Maybe it might be better to grow an audience there and grow a community and see how that flourishes versus just launching another book to the, to the world. And yeah, cause, uh, you know, I've seen yeah, your Substack. Like, did you get like uh, feedbacks from like the the question you openly? Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Getting it right now. I'm still it's it's still coming through my feed. Like I, uh, so for the audience, uh, practical data modeling came out a bit ago. Um, it's been getting a lot of good response. Like just um, a lot of a lot of questions and a lot of people just debating with each other, which I think is awesome. You know, so that's oh, cool. super cool to see. Yeah, but to me, that's the essence of what what this whole world is going to be about going forward. Is like. Generative AI can generate content, but you, but it's going to be really hard to I think replicate that discourse with with people and ac experts, right? And that's that's really what you're trying to drive out, even with a book, is the ideas should spark conversation and, and debate, and you know, hopefully challenge your own thinking as, as you write the book. And I, I feel like because I, I know that what, what you know what, what you said at the beginning before we recorded, like when you saw your students using ChatGPT, like it seemed like a part of you died. 
in a way because you saw this and you're just like what the what's going on here yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I, I agree actually like i was like i i don't understand why people are not like are so silent because it, it changed like as well like physically in the in in the room actually like people were so silent they were like just really yeah like they are not speaking loud in the in the year in the year before uh, they were like raising hand, uh, like speaking loudly and stuff. And this year, I don't know if it, if it's just because of ChatGPT, but something like physically in the room was totally different than the previous year. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, and it was so weird to me. Like I, I, the first day I was like, yeah, they are just sleepy actually. <laughs> that's because it's the morning, they are sleepy. I need to wake them up. But yeah, the next day what was the same. But actually, wow. as well, like my my course is super hard because it's like the TAOPS one, and I'm trying to teach them like the concept of putting data stuff in production, which is completely new to them. Like um, they have seen Docker, but they have seen Docker locally, uh, and so I'm trying like to teach them like the cloud. Uh, and when you are in the cloud, you are like you have issues like every time and you jump from issues to issues to issues to issues and at the end you're like super tired and yeah <laughs> i guess as well is like maybe it hit them in the face and they were saying because of this but i guess ChatGPT has a yeah <laughs> i mean it might be worth just having the students if you're in person um just especially just have people uh shut their laptops and leave their phones in a Maybe a basket at the door or something, and then we can just have a conversation about you know, the problems we're trying to to learn about. Maybe that's mm. something that comes to mind if, you've, if you're doing in person. Yeah, if, you're, right. if you're doing virtual, if you're doing virtual, forget about it. Like people are going to have ChatGPT open, but in person may, might lend itself really well to that experience. I don't know. Try it out. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe that there is something that can be replicated from like companies, like the having some kind of uh, pair programming, but uh, in a class, like. One person is going like to the whiteboard with a computer, yeah. sharing the screen, and the whole class is like funneling like all the ideas to the the, the, the person mm, on the computer, like, like the whiteboard. That's really good, because um, that's really what you'd be doing in the real world anyway. Is just getting up there, you know, troubleshooting problems as a team, and I think that's and yeah. that's also one of the skills we talk about. You know, engineers coming out of school, one of the things that they really lack is that that sense of group dynamics and group problem solving, right? And they, yeah, you're yeah. right. That's awesome, Christoph. Yeah, there you go. Um, feels like that's that's where it's all heading, though. Like you know, it, which is kind of funny because it's going back to basically the eighteen uh, hundreds. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. But that's awesome. Um, cool. It's it's been good chatting with you as always. Um, I'll let you know next time I'm in Europe. I'll go hang out again. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, for people who want to learn more about you and and uh, what you're about, how can they do that? So people can find me or like on my website slash blog. Uh, it's uh, blef.fr or on my LinkedIn, Christophe Blefari. And yeah, that's mainly where I'm active and where I do stuff. Like, Cool. Awesome. Good newsletter. Go check it out, everybody. So oh, thank awesome, you. man. Yeah, it's good to, good to see you again. So uh, so, hey, yeah, good to see you too. Thank, be, thank um, you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, 
Anytime, anytime. Oh, it's just fun. We I mean, we spend a lot of time just walking around wherever we are. So yeah, yeah. Each time I, I I help you visit the city. Like next time, maybe we do it like in <laughs> in Rome. I don't know. <laughs> That'd be dope. So yeah, awesome. All right, thanks. See you, Christoph. Au revoir. See you, Joe. Bye.